This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Rico. And I'm Lauren Good, senior tech editor at The Verge. And you're listening to Too Embarrassed to Ask, coming to you from the Vox Media Podcast Network at Google right now, actually. This is a show where we answer all of your embarrassing questions about consumer tech. It could be anything, like, what is blockchain? Kara, what is blockchain? I have no idea. I still we don't know. I've the entire on show it. about something. If you're something. curious, if you're a fintech nerd, listen to last week's episode. Yeah, please don't. You could ask something like, do I need a fancy new router or Wi-Fi extender if I'm going to get decent Wi-Fi in my house? Yes. We've talked about that a lot on the yep. show, and we're going to talk mm-hmm. about it in an upcoming week as well. Uh, will Amazon's new grocery store be called Prime Foods or Whole Echo? Oh, my God. Did I you came make up, up that one myself. It's so sad. You know, I just realized everything I buy is from Jeff Bezos now. I literally, like, I buy my food at Whole Foods, and I buy the other stuff at Jeff Bezos. So every, all my money are belong to Jeff Bezos. Congratulations, no Jeff. Problem. You put together quite a profile, oh, a nice right. little data profile of Kara Swisher. Mm-hmm. My final question is, how much has Kara Swisher missed me over the past few weeks? Not even slightly. What? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, totally a lot. <laughs> We're hot mic right now. Right, I know that. This I got is live. It. Not at all. I've missed you not even slightly. My children have been here all summer, and I've been enjoying my time with them. Okay, great. Well, maybe I'll rethink going to and your And when you tonight. leave, I'll get back to your juvenile antics, all right? Okay. okay good. All Sounds right. Good. We're doing a show here this week from Google, actually, but for future shows, send us your questions because we read, do read them all. We got a ton this week on our topic. You can find us on Twitter or tweet them to us at, at Recode or to myself or to Lauren with the hashtag Too Embarrassed. And we have an email address, Too Embarrassed at Recode.net. You can also reach us there. Yes, exactly. Now, I said we are actually at one of Google's many sprawling buildings in Mountain View, California right now. Um, we're broadcasting from there. We are, yes. and we're talking about virtual reality today, we are. We which are we've talked about, about on this show before. Mm-hmm. Almost exactly a year ago, we went to Stanford University, their Human Computer Interaction Lab, and we talked with Jeremy Balanson, one right. of my uh, former professors, about virtual reality. We did a really fun Facebook Live. Uh, that was great. Yeah, but um, we're going to talk to someone else today about someone it. Else. Who it's is a big topic quite in Silicon Valley, and this. one of the companies that's involved in it is Google. And it's an, an area that we're all very interested in. There's a lot of, been a lot of investment in the concept, not just from Google, but from Apple's in it. Facebook is in it. They bought Oculus. Um, all kinds of people are making investments in all kinds of things. So we're very excited to have uh, Clay Bavor here with us. He's Google's vice president of virtual reality. Clay, welcome to Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thank you for having me. So that was a nice long rambly intro. I know for those people who like to categorize podcasts and say, well, there's ones of like, you know, a bunch of guys talking and then long rambly ones. And yes. Ones, Whisper it, hush tones. We just filled the long rambly. One. OK, exactly. Anyway, so, we're here to talk about VR with Clay. So uh, let's have Clay talk about uh, about what's going on in VR. But first, talk a little bit about how you got here and how you got to Google, which has been dabbling in the area for a long time. Yeah, it was a somewhat circuitous path. As a kid, I was lucky enough to have a computer at home. Uh, it was an LC2. It had a color monitor. Mm-hmm. I had Claris Works and started making kind of basic computer art when uh, I was in elementary school. And I was just kind of obsessed with this idea that you could create pictures and images 
on the computer. And a little bit later, I saw the first kind of 3D renders. This was pre-Toy Story, mm -hmm. uh, really the very first 3D computer graphics. And Don't tell me you had um, AutoCAD, did you? No, I had more basic, uh, less expensive, less right. fancy tools, yeah, right. like a Ray Dream Designer. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd ask my parents to combine my birthday and Christmas and next birthday present to get... Um, you know, a 16 megabyte memory SIM uh, mm -hmm. for my uh, my computer, so I could have higher resolution textures or whatever. What Quite a skilled negotiator. And what are you trying to make? What were you painting? I I, I was apples? obsessed with this idea. Uh, not apples. I was obsessed with this idea of trying to recreate real objects in these programs and have them look real. And so, for example, uh, I spent a week trying to recreate my dad's Walkman. Um, wow. in, in 3D. And I do renderings of them and show them to my parents and try and fool them into thinking they were seeing photographs. And just this idea that you could use a computer and if you understood light and shadow and form well enough, you could create something that looked real. I don't know why, but I just thought it was fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it kind of went from there. I got into photography and panoramic photography and... Um, uh, ended up doing kind of these small, silly kind of freelance projects with 3D animation and rendering as a teenager and always had it in the back of my mind. And um, then, you know, I was at Google for many years. Um, working doing on, what? what I worked on ads. Um, I helped integrate AdMob, the, the mobile mm -hmm. ads company. Um, and I spent three or four years uh, leading the product and design teams for Gmail and Google Docs and some of our kind of productivity and, and work-focused apps. Um, but I had started doing some prototyping work with the the very first Oculus Rift developer kit um, mm -hmm. at Google. This was at, oh, this was at this Google. Was at Google. Okay. This was at Google, and kind of so you see, is this your twenty percent like, project? My kind of my twenty percent okay. project, yeah. yeah. And at the at the time, um, you know, it was uh, as is usual, kind of the hundred and twenty percent project or whatever. Come in literally, you know, nights and weekends, and mm -hmm. um, I built this kind of weird thing that I called the teleportation robot, where you you um, put on some goggles and basically wake up in another room. And what we were doing was matching your movement in one room to the movement of a robotic arm with two cameras on it in another room oh, and piping the video back to... That's super crude. Oh. It was cool. Yeah. Um, it was cool. It was very strange. Um, but enough people saw that that when then the first Google Cardboard um, prototype showed up, Google Cardboard was that thing where right. you put your phone into it, it turns into kind of a basic VR headset. Uh, it occurred to, to people, hey, Clay should see this. And I thought it was neat, and we had eight and a half weeks to Google I.O., and we said, hey, we should do, we should do something with this. This is neat. Um, and that's kind of where this all started. So, so that's, you know, so it's that's just your brief interest. history. And had, this, had Google made the investment in Magic Leap and other things by this time, and that was Facebook had bought Oculus? That, or? it was 2014, and a lot happened oh, yeah. that year. So, so yeah, I'm not sure okay. at a, uh, the exact time. Oh, yeah. Cardboard yeah, Facebook came, bought Oculus Cardboard came out yeah. a few months after sure. the Oculus acquisition, mm -hmm. and I'm not sure when Magic Leap happened. It was all mm -hmm. around the same time. Okay. Right. Talk a little bit about your Google's approach to VR. I mean, it sounds like since its inception, it's, it's something that's been kind of hacked together in a sense. I mean, you, literally your first headset was cardboard. You've since done... Daydream, which is very mobile focused. And so that's a very different experience from the heavy duty tethered headsets we've seen from some of your competitors. Talk about why that, why Google is taking that approach. Yeah. So uh, I think first of all, it's, it's not that hard to see where this all goes, where mm -hmm. imagine you have some glasses and you put them on and you feel like you're completely transported somewhere else. Mm -hmm. 
courtside at a Warriors game or at Machu Picchu or back in maybe a moment of your life that you've recorded. Uh, I think so that was an episode of Black Mirror, but go ahead. And a bad one. The, um, a bad episode. Uh, but, but the reality is all of the technology, we're at the very beginning of kind of the, the journey to that fully realized version of, of VR. And uh, we thought it, it was important to start simple, where things were low cost, literally, in our case, made out of cardboard, um, making use of kind of the tools and, and technologies exists. already available in your life. And that gave people a way to get a glimpse of the possibility of this thing um, in a way that was very approachable, affordable, um, uh, and simple, right? And, and this insight that, oh, your smartphone with a high-resolution screen and some sensors has a lot of what you need for a basic VR experience. And you can unlock that um, kind of hidden power of a basic so is VR that to get people used cardboard. to it? It's kind of, I'm aging myself, but using Pong to show what video games could do. Remember Pong? You don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do remember, remember Pong. It right, was Pong. amazing. It was, it was just, amazing. Well, it really wasn't. When you go um, to play it now, it's not amazing in any way. Uh, looking back on it, bong, it's less amazing. Bong, bong, right. right. Um, but it was the first time you could interact with a television or in some computers. I think there's an element of that, right? It's kind right. of a, 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 small, a small, approachable, simple proof point of mm-hmm. it. And I think for a lot of people, like, whoa, I feel like I'm there. That's cool, right? Mm-hmm. And it was a glimpse of something to come. Right. Do you feel like you've sacrificed quality at all in terms of the experience because you've it's so mobile focused, mobile centric right now? Well, obviously when you're you're unconstrained on power and compute and cost and so on, you can do more, right? And so um, we're certainly making different trade-offs than, you know, for example, the PC systems make. Um, mm-hmm. and and those those are deliberate, you know, with cardboard for example, um, one of the one of the interesting things not many people know is um, well there was a people asked hey why isn't there a head strap on it right everything else has a head strap well that was a very deliberate decision because when you hold it with your hands right you rotate not with your head but with your torso your torso mm-hmm. moves much more slowly than your head it makes it far more comfortable to use this thing when things like uh, you hear a lot of people talking about latency in, in right. VR so it makes it more comfortable. So um, we tried to make the trade-offs to make it more accessible, more approachable, lower cost, but do that in a way that um, uh, preserved the quality of the experience, the comfort, and so on. And I think we did that with Cardboard, and I think we've done an even better job of that with, with Daydream, which is the, the mobile VR thing we launched, uh, launched last year. Right. So talk about where it goes, because here you are starting off very simply. I see the point of why you would do it. Others are not. Others are starting rather complex. And one of the complaints, except for really geeky men, it seems, think that it's okay to wear these massive things on your head with things popping out the back in a room, in a white room with edges. It's just completely unusable for a consumer. So they're approaching it from that side. And even the new Oculus or or the, the various Vive or Vive, uh, Vive yeah, is they're very onerous as a, as a system to be able to enjoy in any way, unless you're in one of these great labs where they have them. Well, uh, so again, I think they're making different trade-offs in the space. And mm-hmm. there's no doubt that VR today, there's a lot of friction in it. It mm-hmm. costs a lot. Um, and because it's early days in it, that there's there's not that much to do in it yet. Right. And I, I think that's just being honest about mm-hmm. where we are. Where this goes, I, I think... Um, I get very excited about it where, you know, if I, if I told you here, here are these glasses you can put on that, that, can, right. that can give you access to any experience you could have with sight and sound right? that happens anywhere on the earth. It's like, that sounds great. I would love that. Right. Especially if you could go there with other people, right? And, you know, I hope to see some portion of the thousand most beautiful places on earth. I'm not going to get to them all. 
Um, and so how great would it be to basically add to the set of experiences that a person can, can have? And so this idea that by um, capturing uh, reality experiences, whether it's you know the best seats at uh, a basketball game or a concert or something else that you care about, and enabling instead of one person to have access to that seat, uh, 10,000 or a million people, I think that's super powerful and compelling and mm-hmm. something that, that really gets me excited. The other is, and I think this, this kind of fully realized version of, of, of VR, and again, it's, it's going to be a while to get there, but um, uh, one of the other areas is capturing moments in your life. Right. And if you think about what do we use our, our phones for, cameras for, uh, very few of the photos we take are kind of artistically beautiful and well composed and so on. At least I'm speaking for myself, right? Yeah, you are. A lot, we take uh, beautiful uh, photos. Um, it's possible. Um, the, um, it's about capturing a moment, capturing a memory. And we have line of sight to kind of the first versions of VR cameras that let you record an experience, right? And I've been using these in my own life. I have two young kids. Um, And, you know, of course, you want to be present, but there are these these moments, you go to the beach, right? Or even just moments um, uh, with young kids where they're at a certain state and five seconds of breakfast, 30 seconds of breakfast, the ability to step back into those moments and almost re-experience them. It's very powerful. And um, that's another uh, another direction I think this goes that I, I think is super exciting. And then there are the obvious ones, gaming, immersive gaming, and so sure. on. Mm-hmm. I, think, I, right. I, think that's, I think that right now mm-hmm. uh, and today, and I think will remain for a while, uh, um, a smaller, more niche uh, use. gaming. A smaller set of the population is going to be interested in kind of fully immersive oh, you could go, VR gaming. Uh, obviously, besides, let's just skip over porn right now. But the gaming or experiential kind of things is what you're talking about. One of the things that I've noticed when I've tried a lot of these things, and I've tried everything from the touching the whale one to the gaming ones to watching a full movie where you feel someone behind you. I just did one with John Favreau, who's working on a bunch around gnomes, or there's goblins or no, gnomes, goblins or and gnomes, whatever, it, yeah. something little tiny. Creatures. Haven't seen that one yet. Yeah. It's cool. It's, it sounds great. I don't love gnomes, but that's fine. So they're all different. That one's more for kids, so that, and it's not scary. Like a lot of them are scary, but one of the things you're talking about is very different. Is is creating complete reality in your present like complete like, yeah like creating these these sort of experiences like for in perpetuity of right. the people that you know now which is interesting because one of the companies there's a company in LA that I did a video piece on for Recode a few mm-hmm. months back and they have a Tango app actually we're gonna get to Tango in a bit uh, but one of the thing and they're mostly doing entertainment uh, and marketing things but one of the things they mentioned as an aside was that there were some people in LA who were coming in to get uh, holograms of their children made because they wanted them sort of captured in this moment in time, which right. I thought was like super interesting. That's creepy. Wrote on my list of things to. Well, look into. but what I'm thinking about when you think about these things is you don't know where it's going to go. And I'm just thinking of a movie that I reference a lot, which was the the Tom Cruise movie Minority Report. And they go to that hall where people experience, like, I won the Oscar or, you know, all kinds of different things. Or whether it was porn or whether it was skiing or what, whatever, or, or whether it was killing your boss, like, that kind of thing. Do you imagine – I don't think we can know where it goes. We can guess in a lot of ways where these things go. How do you guys think about that? Because I know you guys have hired anthropologists. You're kind of looking at – your news lab is doing some of that, like, why people want these things. What do you imagine is going to break through first of all these various things? Yeah. 
I guess to start, my you know, my hope is and my belief is that it's going to be tremendously additive, right, to the, the human experience, what you can do, what you can see, what you can experience from. And I talked about things like the best seat at whatever you care most about or um, uh, remembering things important to you. What we're seeing on Daydream, for example, is that uh, people love going places. Mm-hmm. People People, Experiential. People love people love seeing stuff, experiencing stuff that's hard to get access to, um, and that could be the other side of the world or one of my very favorite VR pieces by Felix and Paul. They did basically a guided tour of the White House, a place that most people won't go, given by Barack and Michelle Obama. Mm-hmm. And you sit, you know, the, you sit five feet from Obama, and it's a very compelling experience. Mm-hmm. I can and, think of some people who might just want to slip back into that now. <laughs> they could. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Um, it's it's a great piece of VR. No uh, it's a it's a great piece of VR content, and I think um, is it the fully realized version of VR? No, not right. not yet. But I, I think it, you, you can you can see you can see glimmers of it. Before we get into other uh, competitors that are doing this, also, what do you imagine needs to happen? Because one of the things when you're talking about that, there's you know I remember 20 years ago at the Media Lab at, in MIT was talking about haptic. Mm-hmm haptic touch and feeling, you know, I just went to Universal and I was in a movie and they sprayed water at me when I had glasses on. But you're supposed to feel like you're at the ocean. It worked. Let me tell you, it worked for the whole crowd. Like I was like, oh, I'm at the ocean. It didn't take much. How does that work when you think, because you've got to have the entire haptic experience when you're, you can't just be in a visual environment. There's got to be sound environment. You've got to feel like someone's behind you. You've got to, how do you imagine that occurring if you just wear glasses? Yeah. So, uh, because you can convince people of it visually, but you can't. Every sense adds something, right? Mm-hmm. And so vision is vision is part of it. And and really, the the what's behind this feeling in virtual reality of of being somewhere else, right? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of my cheat sheet definition of VR, which is right. It can take you anywhere and make you feel like you're there. Sure. Vision is one part of that. And, and by vision, it means that as you move your head and move your body, the world that, that you see reacts, reacts to your movement in exactly the same way the real world would. Mm-hmm. Well, you can add sound to that, right? And so there are technologies uh, to do what's called spatializing audio, where you can make a sound or a voice uh, appear as if it's coming from somewhere in space. Haptics, as you say, touch and feel. Once you once you see something, you can hear it and reach out and touch it. It makes it even more realistic. Right, it pushes back. And so or it that's right. And so uh, you, there's a whole class of experiences possible uh, without haptics. For example, uh, for example, uh, the at the concert watching a, a musician. You're you're seeing and hearing stuff, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's not a hands-on experience. Well, you should have there, beer spilled on you, but go ahead. Um, yes, uh, very advanced haptics. That, yeah, that, that yeah. would be challenging. We haven't solved that one yet. And so I think you're going to have this large library of kind of sight and sound experiences, and then a, a smaller library, a smaller set of possibilities um, with with haptics. Where to start, it'll be controllers and simple things pushing back on you. Um, but how you do haptics for something like leaning on a wall in virtual reality, mm-hmm. uh, we, we, have no we, we have no idea. We have no idea. We have no idea, right? right. The, the, the technologies to create those things without extreme expense don't exist. And well, so, could you trick people into it? I'm just curious because sometimes when I'm in those environments, it does trick me. I did feel like someone was near me, but they weren't. 
there's a, a lot of VR is about illusions and, and mm-hmm. right, you, you in essence trick your, your senses into thinking that they're experiencing reality when they're not. And so there are tricks you can do. So for example, you could replace the, uh, the wall that feels like a brick wall with uh, a wood wall that someone rolls in. Right. Uh, okay, well, that's not a great scalable <laughs> solution, but it's doable, right? right? And I think you'll find installations uh, like the void Game. is something mm-hmm. that I'm very excited about, right? These kind of installation VR experiences where they create haptics by modeling parts of the environment, but then replacing them in VR with walls that are maybe of a different type, mm-hmm. but that line up with a physical wall. Yeah. Like in the Stanford um, lab I mentioned earlier, the floor is actually a vibrating floor, mm-hmm. so that as you're experiencing VR, you can feel the sort of shakes mm-hmm. of, the, of the floor. And it's, it's That's pretty, right. It can be pretty like alarming if you're not, it feels very real. It, it does feel very real. I think for the for things like that, again, you, you kind of need to go to a place where it's installed. I think it's going to mm-hmm. be a long time before you know we have your home. Uh, 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 you know, a vibrating floor in our home. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Don't put it past Kara Swisher. I will. I want to ask you about AR because, in addition to everything you've been doing with VR, you also have been working on something called Tango, which, for those of you who don't know, has been a thing at Google since 2013. And it is a sort of a software package, but it's also kind of a hardware specification where you guys are working with phone makers to get really sophisticated 3D augmented reality on phones. Apple, of course, just announced something called ARKit last month, where they're doing some pretty sophisticated AR stuff, but just with the software on existing phones. Yours has been sort of more of a, like a hardware approach. Talk a little bit about that. What do you think so far of Apple's ARKit? Yeah, well, it's exciting, right? And first of all, I think I get a lot of questions about like, hey, VR versus AR. I think they're the mm-hmm. same thing. I, I, and I, or it's similar. I, it, they're, they're different points on the same spectrum. Right. I think of that spectrum as, I call it immersive computing. I don't really care about the label, yeah. but it's this idea that you have computing and digital imagery that, that feels like it's there. Mm-hmm. Virtual reality, everything is computer generated. Augmented reality, you have bits and pieces of digital information overlaid on your environment. And uh, multiple I, I, reality MR is what I'm calling it. Um, you can just, there, are, there are other MRs too. There's mixed and merged reality. Merged reality. So you're just, yeah. just adding MR. to the confusion. There, yeah. there, there are many, right. um, and so I, I see them as as closer related, and um, it's it's the reason we've been doing work at kind of all places in the spectrum yeah. from VR first with cardboard, and then Daydream, and uh, in AR with with Tango, and. Um, so yeah, Tango started in 2013, and we had the the first kind of uh, mobile AR uh, developer kit out in 2014. And the insight was, huh, you can use mobile sensors, right? Cameras on mobile phones, um, the uh, the sensors that give your phone a sense of orientation. Mm-hmm. You can use cheap uh, consumer grade sensors to do pretty sophisticated sensing things, like tracking where the phone is in space, which lets you do things like place an object convincingly you know, on the ground and have it feel like it's really there, or um, uh, give you directions through a building, um, things like that. And so um, I think what's exciting about uh, ARKit is not so much the ARKit software itself, right? That those techniques have been around for a while and they've been running on, on Tango phones for a couple of years. It's the it's the scale of the Apple ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. That that and the the developer pull and interest that that creates. And um, we've been thinking about investing in this space, um, thinking about and investing in this space for years now. And having more people thinking about building for immersive computing, whether it's AR, whether it's VR, 
I think is a great thing and something I'm excited about. So I think it's really interesting. But right now, for example, there, you know, I used the Lenovo Fab 2 Pro smartphone that it had to have, I think, four different types of cameras or sensor sets in it, including an IR sensor, a depth sensor, a camera sensor, and all of that. I mean, are you thinking about doing some type of solution that wouldn't require all of those sensors to be in a smartphone? I think scale's really important. Developers build where right, a lot of people can, can use, use their software, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so... Um, I think overnight, not every phone is going to have some of these more advanced sensors in it. And so I think there are paths to having far more devices than just those with the dedicated sensors uh, have it running things like Tango. And so that's something we're excited about. Mm-hmm. And when you think about AR, what do you think the, mo- the biggest applications are? One of the ones you had for was one of, which caused a lot of sensation and then sort of went somewhere was Google Glass, which is now sort of back apparently. A lot of people were fascinated by it and then quickly discouraged by it. And I always thought that it was super unattractive. It didn't work really well. It was super glitchy. Um, I had a line I kept saying that it renders supermodels unattractive. You know, it just the whole thing wasn't like wasn't a great experience. What is, is it back? Are you working on it? Are you using it? Or is it just an idea that doesn't the idea? You said glasses several times. Yeah, glass. The I think you're referring to glass enterprise edition, right? There's some news yeah. earlier this week yeah. about that. So that's actually run from the Google X team, right? Mm-hmm. So part of the Alphabet family, but not mm-hmm. part of my team. Um, and and I think what they're doing there is 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 smart and a recognition of where. Uh, glass found um, yeah, people in kind the of field. fit, right? People people have found it really useful. I think glass, um, the idea and the kind of fully realized vision of of immersive computing, glasses, and AR, I obviously agree with that. Right, I right. think it was a bit early for its time, I think, and uh, it was not yet broadly useful, right? right? But for someone like a physician where they need to see patient notes and have their hands free, it's immensely useful, right? And so I think that team is clever to kind of focus on that. And I think of it not as AR, more as like a heads-up display, right, that, hmm. that you can use hands-free. So right? what is Do you AR? think it's more like HoloLens in that way? I mean, is it competing with Microsoft and, and trying to, you know, attract enterprise clients? I, I think the thing that the thing that distinguishes augmented reality from, uh, for example, a companion screen that falls, uh, follows, follows you around is, for me, a- awareness of the environment and the ability to put computing into the environment. So, Kara, you asked about, mm-hmm. hey, what, what, do you, what do you think the uses for, for AIR will be? One I am so excited about is very simple, and that is navigation. Right. right? And so I, I spend my day in this building. I still can't find all the conference rooms. Right. Mm-hmm. And so imagine that, that your phone... You know, you could just look through your phone. Oh, the you, you know, your next meeting is over there. Or you get out of a taxi, right, mm-hmm. or an Uber, and it's like, where am I? You're disoriented. It'd be nice if your phone was just, you're going over there. Right. And Without having overlay, to call the map. Overlay footsteps, right, on the right. ground, right, leading the way for yeah. you. Yeah. Microsoft made and a video years ago. Did you ever see it where they do that? Where they were imagining that? I'll send it to I you. I didn't, but it's a good idea. It's fascinating. It's a good idea. And someone and, did a a joke version of it, which was funnier, but it was an overlay of foot, like this is the way you go. Uh, it, it's a good idea, and that will be a thing, right? Mm-hmm. And it'll be helpful. Instead of, you know, getting out of the, the cab and trying to make sense of our blue dot on yes. the overhead map and, you know, waving our phone to calibrate the compass and so yeah. on, I would say you're, you're going we over do, there. We do shift our lives for you people. Like we do all kinds of weird and 
unfortunate things. What do you mean we shift our lives? Meaning I was thinking about that today. I was using the map, and I'm like, what the hell way does this go? Why is it not just orienting to me? It was fa- And I was thinking these friggin' Google people have me doing what they want me to do versus I had a little moment. So I think yes. AR could. You're in the I right think place. I know that. that. I'm complaining. I have to call the maps people. I think AR could help yeah. you with Yeah, that. exactly. Yeah. So just before we get to readers' questions, one of the things that I think is important is business. Like Google has enormous amounts of money, and you've got your little search business that seems to be still doing rather well and paying for all this and besides your you know your hoverboards and your time machines you know this is probably an area of great promise from a financial point of view how much pressure is on you to make money at it or you can see there's money to be made here this is something you can actually see a path towards businesses and and all kinds of content businesses hanging off of it when do you imagine that happens like there's obviously there's devices there's content there's subscriptions all kinds of things that could happen what do you how do you look at this as a business well, to start, we're doing, I think, what, what Google generally do, does, which is start with figuring out what is the product and user experience and building something that's useful to, to users and mm-hmm. trying to figure out how should this work, how can we do a useful job uh, for, for our users, and kind of assume that if, if we can do something valuable, delightful, fun, um, that uh, kind of the business models and, and monetization opportunities follow. Mm-hmm. and. I think there there's some near-term things that we have line of sight to. For example, and we see we see huge interest in and again kind of VR video and YouTube VR mm-hmm. uh, because it, again it's fun to go places. It's fun to go to Coachella if you can't make it to Coachella or to you know travel to the other side of the world with Street View. And you can imagine kind of VR ads where you could go inside the showroom for uh, a new car or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And so I think that's a very very natural extension. Uh, what I'll say is we're very much in the figuring it out and getting it right phase. And the, the product, the technology, the user experiences. Um, and while I think it's useful to, to keep an eye on the, the business models and, and, and how, that, how those will play out, it's not our focus right now. It's, it's the technology and most importantly, the, the use cases, the jobs we're doing for users, right? Taking them to the other side of the world to see something they care about and, and things like that. And do you imagine you need help from Hollywood and others? Because not to say that Google people are not creative, but Google people are not creative in that way. You know what I mean? How do you partner with people who are actually – because to me, one of the problems with Hollywood is that there's a lot of people who can make movies or TV shows, but there's this is a whole other class of content creatives. Do you know what I mean? That it's totally a different thing. And, and that's agree. why I went and interviewed John Favreau agree. because he's sort of thinking that way and even he has a hard time with it. And he's obviously right. a, like distribution is changing so much through, right. you know, there are some producers that still don't necessarily want to work with just the basic streaming platforms because right. of the way it's shifted the economics. So when you talk about something like this now let's make content for level. VR, that's a that's a whole different area of distribution. And think and creative heads. Yeah. Right. The um so Sir John Hegarty mm-hmm. of uh is it BBH, one of the, the big UK-based advertising agencies, had this great quote. He said, technology creates possibility, creativity creates value. Mm-hmm. And I like to think of a lot of the, the job we're doing is solving some of the hard technical problems um, from how do you capture reality in a way that you can kind of represent it in another place in, in virtual reality, um, or the, the glasses, the hardware that actually makes this stuff possible. Um, but absolutely, the, the artistry, the content, the storytelling, the narratives, the, the content, the IP, the characters that you connect with, right. it's so important. And the, uh, a headset or an operating system or anything without the, the experiences, the content, the art in it, 
It's not so a value. So who's going to do that? It's Is that a, a Google thing that they're going to pay for? The way YouTube sort of tried to seed? Because, you know, you don't just get Star Wars. I mean, although George Lucas did do the special effects stuff and then used it for the story that made billions and billions and billions of dollars. Who does that? Is that Google going to have to, like, pay for creators to exist? Well, I, I think it's a combination. Or so, Facebook or uh, whoever. I, I think it's a combination of things. So one thing I, I'm really proud of that we're doing is we have uh, we've we've built this system called Jump, as in enable you to jump to Paris and then the other side of the Earth and Machu Picchu, and it's a, a camera system for capturing VR video, mm -hmm. uh, very high quality VR video, and we partnered with a couple companies to make these these VR cameras. We have a program program called Jump Start, which we're loaning cameras and giving processing time to students, artists, and so on to go and, and use do. these tools and see what they do. And so it's kind of enabling creative people with the tools and helping them with the technology, with the process, in some cases with money, to go and make great things and see what happens. With Tilt Brush, we had an artist in residence right. program where we reached out to great artists and said, hey, here's this tool. We think it's neat. What will you do with it? And people came back with some amazing things. Um, and then I think, of course, as, as with any kind of medium, we'll be looking to, to partner with Hollywood and developers of games to bring franchises and IP um, and so on you know, into VR, into AR, uh, so that people can connect with characters and stories and stuff that they care about. Yeah, um, I don't think often, it's going to be Hollywood. That's the thing. I don't, you know what I mean? Like we go there immediately, but it's a whole different mentality. I don't, I don't know. I think it's, I, I they're trying, they're trying, but it's an interesting question of who, like, cause that's what's going to matter with VR. Is I content. think Hollywood will matter a lot. Right. I think, I think a direct translation of film to VR won't work, but I think a lot of the instincts for story, character, special effects, crafting, crafting alternate realities, I think that's really useful. That's I think in addition, you're going to have people who've build, been building games, right? Games are in essence VR worlds. We just didn't have the, the goggles right. to inhabit them, right? And so I think both are going to matter a lot. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't short sell Hollywood at all in this area. All right. All right. In a minute, we're going to take some questions about virtual reality from our readers and listeners. And Clay is going to answer them. Is that right, Clay? That's great. I'm excited right. about these. But first, we're going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, Lauren. The word, please. Ka-ching. Thank you. How do you think that'll sound in like 3D sound it in will, a VR headset? Will, like, Money will fall on your head in That's a right. haptic fashion. Yes. So we'll throw money in people's faces. To build the kinds of things developers want to build today, they need better tools. That's why Amazon Web Services built Amazon Aurora. It's a relational database engine that's compatible with MySQL and PostgreSQL. And it provides up to five times the performance of the standard MySQL on the same hardware at a tenth of the cost. Amazon Aurora from AWS can scale up to millions of transactions per minute. It automatically grows your storage to 64 terabytes. That's a lot of terabytes. And it replicates data to three different availability zones. You don't have to manage a thing. There are no upfront charges, no commitments. You only pay for what you use. Check it out at aurora.aws. We're back with Clay Bavor talking about virtual reality. And now we're going to take some questions from our readers and listeners. Lauren, do you want to read the first question? You know I do. The first question is from Kevin Swint at KSwint on Twitter. Is the primary barrier to mass VR adoption simply the form factor of the headsets? Uh, hey, Kevin, thanks for the question. I think it's a bit more complicated than that. Certainly the, the headsets uh, are part of it. And I think it's important to remember that today's headsets are largely made out of components that were really meant for smartphones. So 
VR headsets basically contain a smartphone display, sensors from smartphones. And so it, it's kind of like trying to make airplanes out of bicycle and car parts, right? You, you can do it. It's possible. It's how the Wright brothers got started, but it's not exactly where, where things converge. So the headsets are part of it, but also I think we're still learning about the content and the medium and the experiences and, and what works and the tools needed to create those. And and so I think more than just you know lower friction, um, higher resolution headsets need to come together. But the cool thing is we see progress on all these fronts, right? We're figuring out what works and uh, improving the hardware. So um, I think we're heading in the right direction. Do you think that even, I'm gonna ask a quick follow-up question, even if you got this engineered perfectly and it was incredibly high fidelity and a great experience. Do you think people will get used to sitting, let's say next to each other on the couch at home, both wearing headsets? I think there are two parts there. One is getting comfortable with with any technology. I think if you know you went back 20 years and you told people that everyone was gonna walk around the street looking at a small glass rectangle in their hand, they might be a bit confused. And so I, I think getting used to it is part of it. I think even more important is there's not yet great software for enabling you to go places in VR with other people, right? In 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 the same room, and so you know, going to concerts is a lot more fun with friends, right? And so we aren't seeing those kind of shared experiences yet, and I think that's one of the big breakthroughs we're going to have to make. Great. Next question, Kara, would you like to ask? This one's from at Rowan Bade. <laughs> Apple is betting on AR, Google on VR. Thoughts? Also, would Daydream work with iPhones someday? P.S. Kara, don't try my last name. Oh, I just did, and I failed badly. Yeah, so great question. To, to start, I, I don't see VR and AR as these two separate things, and, and we talked about this a bit, but rather kind of points on the spectrum of immersive computing. And I think of what we've been doing at Google as working along this spectrum in VR with Cardboard and Daydream, and more in AR with things like Project Tango, um, which which puts kind of augmented reality capabilities into smartphones. And, um, you know, we've, we've had those out for, for two or three years now. And so I think we're betting on immersive computing, that that is going to be useful and unlock some really, really powerful um, tools and experiences uh, for people in, in a big way. And um, again, where and how and, and when and exactly what form factor first, it's hard to say exactly, but uh, I think we, we see that being very important in, in the future of, of computing, entertainment, and, and other things. So that's how I think about that. Daydream on the iPhone. You know, I never say never, but uh, it's important to realize that a lot of the work that we did to make Daydream run on Android phones to kind of VR enable Android phones was deep in the operating system, the core software running on the phone. And of course, we're not able to work on the iPhone operating system on iOS. And so barring some pretty major changes there or some other unforeseen thing, um, I think it's pretty unlikely that Daydream is going to be uh, on the iPhone. Okay. Next question is from at Z Dubas. Hashtag too embarrassed. What's happening with the standalone Daydream headsets? Will they be comparable to the Vive or Rift? Are you going to tether Daydream headsets? Yeah, so at, at Google I.O., which is our developer conference back in May, we announced what we call standalone VR headsets for Daydream. And that just means that rather than having to hook your VR headset up to a PC or put a smartphone in it, everything that you need for VR is there. So the displays, but also kind of the computing, the graphics processor, um, and, and so on, all in, all in these goggles. And so those will be rolling out. Uh, the, the first of those uh, will, will be on sale um, later this year. And, uh, you know, no, no specific updates there right now, but um, later this year. 
and um, uh, they won't be compatible with, uh, sorry, they won't be comparable to the Vive and Rift in that you won't have to plug them into things, right? And so that, that's, that's very different. Um, you know, of course, they're, they're not relying on a big beefy PC for uh, power and compute and so on. And so uh, the experiences that are going to be possible and them are going to be a bit different. Um, but we see some very, very compelling things. And we're excited about just how much easier these things are going to be by being self-contained. You pick it up, you put it on, you're in VR. We're looking forward to that. So there's lots of questions about nausea and dizziness. This one is from Maria Petrova. What's the part of the brain that causes dizziness from VR? Motor cortex, question mark. Do universities and hospitals actually use it for surgery? Next one, Todd Herberlane. Does Google recommend frequent breaks from VR? If so, how frequently? Dr. Baver, you need to tell us. Any evidence that hurts VR's appeal to hardcore gamers? And then Michael Welch asks... Ask them what the worst, funniest incident of motion sickness from VR they have ever seen or heard. So, Clay, have you thrown up? I think that's really the question there. <laughs> it's quite a set of questions, very exciting set of questions. The first one, so what can cause uh, discomfort in VR, m- motion sickness or feeling a bit off? Um, VR done well shouldn't do that, and um, by and large doesn't do that. But uh, when it's off, what's happening is what you see, your vision – disagrees with what your head feels and in particular uh, what your inner ear senses and so there's this weird thing in your inner ear which is basically a, a kind of biological orientation sensor it's it's what lets us keeps our keep our heads level uh, with the horizon and gives us our sense of balance and and so on and our brain is used to as we move our head you experience uh, the the orientation change of your head through your inner ear and your vision, what you see through your eyes, agrees with that. When those two don't agree, so for example, if in VR you turned the scene without the person turning their head, those two senses would disagree and that that's what causes the discomfort. And so again, uh, done right, VR doesn't do that um, and that's, that's one of the, the things we've been working hard on. Um, things like what we call tracking, where the, the head, uh, we, we track the position of the head and make sure that the, the imagery lines up perfectly with, with how you're moving. So let's see, the, the other ones, what, what have we seen? The worst, funniest incident? Well, I'd say no, the one frequent of, breaks, actually. Do you, do you recommend people take breaks from VR? Oh, I think mostly it's listen to your body, right? Listen to how you feel, and if you feel off, okay, you know, take a break, just as you take a break if you're watching TV for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. So, but there's no um, mechanism in a daydream or or anything that Google's doing right now that will say, okay, it's been an hour. Not that I know of. Okay. Not that I know of. No. And then uh, worst funniest incident, uh, I can tell you one one really interesting thing we see is in an experience that we we put people through if they're kind of seeing VR for the first time. We call it the diving board. And it's very simple. Uh, you, you put on goggles, and remember, you're just kind of in a conference room or, or an office building in, in Mountain View generally. You put on goggles, and you're poolside. And it's very clearly not a real pool. You look down at the ground, and it kind of is made of these white uh, rectangles. And you look to your right, and there's a diving board. And you look up, and there's an even taller diving board. And you look up some more, and there's an even taller board d- diving board. And I think the tallest one is 50 meters up. And so we push a button, and you're kind of teleported to the top of this 50-meter-tall diving board. And what happens next is amazing. So people, they duck down. They lower their center of gravity. 
you know, apparently we've evolved to, if we find ourselves, you know, on the face of a cliff to, to lower our center of gravity so we won't fall off, people will reach for hand railings that aren't really there. And once they kind of get their bearings, they stand up and then we say, great, so um, could you please go to the end of the diving board and, and take a step off? You know, remember, you're just in a conference room in Mountain View, everything's fine. People kind of inch out, they get to the end and they look over and and most people can't step off. Most people, most people can't do it. Knowing full well that it's not real, having the imagery clearly be not real, they can't do it. And I think it just speaks to right the the, the power of VR to really make you feel like you're you're somewhere else. And so, those are some of the kind of funniest, most interesting experiences I've seen. You know, fortunately, you know, we, we haven't anything more dramatic than not being able to jump off the diving board. I kind of felt my stomach drop a little bit as you were telling that story. So, and I've had a couple of experiences like that in VR, but we'll save that for another podcast. This question's from Alex Hardy, who's written in before. Thanks, Alex, at Can't Hardly Wait on Twitter. What's the next billion dollar VR use case and what's the next billion dollar VR company? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think we're, we're still looking for the first billion dollar use case and the first, maybe the second uh, after Oculus billion, billion dollar VR company. One of the use cases I, I think is, is just going to be so powerful and, and ubiquitous because everyone cares about something, a, a team, a sports team, an artist, a, a place. Is, is this idea of taking you other places, kind of teleportation with, with VR to other places around the world. Um, and, and so I think that's very promising as, as one of these big billion-dollar use cases. Next, billion-dollar VR company, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, what I can say is I, I just I think there is so much potential in this space, right, where you, you can put on some goggles and – uh, really feel like you're somewhere else, whether that's someplace real, someplace created, something artistically beautiful, something you care about, something you're learning about. And so um, I don't know what the next one will be, but I'm sure that there are going to be many of them you know, over the next decade. Next question is from Sandy Ressler, S. Ressler, who asks, any plan to support more capabilities to live in VR environment to do daily work, typing well, editing docs, etc.? Similar question from uh, Gummy Joe. I hope I pronounced that correctly. What actual use cases does he see for VR in general other than funding games in the next five years, like in the professional field? Yeah, on, on Sandy's question on typing, editing documents, and so on, I think our computers do a good job of that now. And what I always look for in VR, what are things that you can only do in VR, uniquely do in VR, as opposed to things that you can also do in in VR. And so um, I think you could do that. Should you? And is it better than using a laptop or a tablet? I'm I'm not sure. Um, And so I don't I don't see I don't see that being uh, a big use case in the near term. Uh, and that's partly because our existing tools do that well. And, and uh, secondly, because you, for example, need a lot more screen resolution in VR than, than we have today. Uh, on, on the second one, what, what use cases do I see beyond fun and games, um, like in the professional field? We already see glimmers of this in an application uh, that we've actually built called Expeditions. It's a tool for teachers to take classes on virtual field trips to anywhere. That's kind of the virtual reality version of it. And a few months ago, we announced an augmented reality version of it where you can bring any object, the statue of David, a model of the Colosseum uh, in Rome, into the classroom. And uh, it turns out that 
virtual and augmented reality, immersive computing as a, a tool for teaching is a really powerful tool. And I see that extending into the professional fields in things like training and simulation. And I think VR will be pretty important and valuable in that space. It's probably a good segue to the next question from Peg Acterman, who says, I'm just beginning to teach some VR to college journalism classes, suggestions for good use in stories. You mentioned an educational use case, but I guess what's a good example? I'm curious about this, too. What, I don't know. A good story would be for someone to explore VR as a, as a storytelling possibility. Well, I think... Great journalism uh, helps explain what's going on, how to think about something. Great journalism can also help you imagine what's going on in another place, um, kind of help take you there, describe describe the setting, describe the scene, and, and so on. And I think it's in that second one where VR can be especially helpful. Uh, there's, I think there's a big difference between you know reading about a place or actually having a, a glimpse of what it's like to physically be there. And... I think we, we see news outlets using VR to, to do exactly that, right? Put you alongside combat troops, right? For example, what? oh, okay, wow, that's what it's like. Or uh, to put you in the middle of um, uh, parades or festivals or protests. And I, I think that's where I would focus if I, were, if I were using VR for journalism, taking people places, helping them fully get what it's like to be there. Mm-hmm. At The Verge, we have a, we did a 360 video at one point of Michelle Obama, and it was fantastic. But the one thing I will say based on our experience with it is it's very production intensive. It's not kind of like a let's just, you know, grab our DS, DSLR and run out there and shoot something quickly. It, it takes a lot. It takes a lot to edit as well. We're working on making that easier. Oh, with, good. With great companies that, that make some great tools. Great. Kara, do you want to ask the last question? From Edward Vero, here's my question. Do you believe VR can be the drug of the future due to psychological addiction? So, Clay, are you a drug dealer? I think about this like I think about our phones or TV. Um, Our phones are engaging. TV is engaging. Um, I think VR has the potential to be engaging and um, entertaining and amusing and in very similar ways to our phones or our TVs. and so do I see it somehow being qualitatively different from those? I'm not sure I do, right? And I, I think um, you'll have people that use VR for really useful things. You'll have people that use VR for entertainment. And um, I think just as our phones or our TVs are engaging, it'll be engaging too, right? And um, uh, will we have people who use VR a lot? Probably, right? Um, uh, but I see that as no different from, you know, do we all use our phones a lot? But you're also promising that it'll be more immersive than that. The promise of VR is that it gives you a more realistic or immersive, engaging experience, right? So I guess if you're impacting, I don't know, the human emotions or cognitive development in a greater way. I agree the uh, sense of immersion and presence and and um, the kind of richness of the sensory experience, that's absolutely the, the promise of VR. I think uh, we have some work to do, right, before we we fully realize that goal. This has been another great episode of Too Embarrassed to Ask. Clay, thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. If you all enjoyed this week's episode as much as we did, be sure to subscribe to the show. And you can also leave us a review. Go to iTunes.com slash Too Embarrassed to Ask. And we really do read all of your reviews. We don't. I don't at all. But Lauren does. But seriously, subscribe. If you do, you'll be the first to listen to new episodes every Friday or catch up on previous episodes where we answer all of the tech questions 
that our listeners have been too embarrassed to ask. Yes, and you can also subscribe on Google Play Music, right. TuneIn, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or you can just go to the website, go to recode.net slash podcasts. Yes, and while you're there, you should check out our other podcasts like Recode Decode, Recode Replay, and Recode Media with Peter Kafka. The Verge also has a great podcast. It's our flagship called The Vergecast, hosted by Nilay Patel. Don't forget to tweet your questions ahead of time to at Recode with the hashtag too embarrassed or email them to too embarrassed at recode.net. Thanks for listening and thanks also to Digital Media, the company that distributes this show, including Beth O'Connell and our editor Chris Basil. And thank you to our producer, Eric Johnson, who has not removed his VR headset since approximately 2013. <laughs> He's wearing it right now. We'll be back next week to answer more of the questions you've been too embarrassed to ask, so tune in then. <laughs>